Morning, Saints. Good morning. I feel very privileged to uh, have been invited here at this particular time of year because I couldn't help but notice I'm here for the Fungus Fest. <laughs> I can't wait to see what goes on at the Fungus Fest. If you wouldn't mind uh, opening your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, please. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis is the easiest book in the world to find. I've just been told now that I'm not on. I sing of the mighty power of God. Is it on? I feel so privileged to have been invited here at this particular time of year. For the fungus fest. Studying Israel really is one of the greatest studies a Christian can engage in because you can literally see the hand of God move through the nation of Israel and God, in effect, says as much as we'll see in the Bible. Another thing that we learn is that through Israel, we can literally see what time it is on the prophetic time clock. God says, you want to know what time it is? Uh, take a good look at Israel. You want to see my hand literally move? You want to see the power of God with your very eyes? Take a good look at the nation of Israel. And we're going to do that right now. If you'll please look at Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Saints, I ask you, here we are. Abraham, Jesus Christ was 2,000 years ago. Abraham was 2,000 years before Jesus Christ. So it's 4,000 years ago that God says to a man, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make a nation of you. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Is that in fact what happened? Can we look at today's world and see if this is true or not? He said he'd make Israel a great nation. The descendants of Abraham, he'd make a great nation. Abraham was 75 years old at the time. His wife was 10 years younger. They had no children. God says you're going to have a son. He's called the son of promise because, well, 75-year-old men who have 60-year-old wives don't generally have children. God shows up 25 years later and says, oh, remember that uh, son we talked about? At this time next year, you'll have a son and his name will be Isaac, the son of promise. Sure to his word, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. There's a famine in the land, so they're driven down to Egypt for grain. Joseph just happens to be the prime minister of Egypt. 
And 400 years later, the family that came to Egypt of 70 marches out of Egypt, the greatest power in the world, without firing a shot. They, walk, they march out with all the gold and the silver, two to three million strong. They march through the Red Sea. They go to Mount Sinai where they get their Bill of Rights and their Constitution. And in order to have a great nation, you have to have real estate. So God gives them the land known then as Canaan, the land that was promised to them. Their first conquest under uh, Moses' successor is the conquest of the victory at Jericho, and the rest of the story is history. It's 1,000 years before Jesus Christ, under what is known as the period of the kings, that Israel rises to a world power. Under Saul and, and David and Solomon, Israel becomes a world power. David makes Jerusalem the capital of Israel. Solomon builds the temple. And by the way, the temple, if that building was built today using those specifications, experts tell us it would cost somewhere between 150 and 200 billion dollars to build the temple there was so much silver and so much gold and just to put that in context to build a skyscraper today cost about 1.5 billion dollars the temple would be a hundred and fifty billion dollars did israel become a great nation they conquered egypt without a shot being fired they became a world power and built the most the grandest, most glorious structure that's ever been built in the name of God. Does that qualify as a great nation? Please remember that this promise to Abraham and to his descendants to build a great nation, to be a blessing to the world, to make Abraham's name great, was to Abraham and to his descendants, which means that promise is still in the process of being fulfilled. Did Abraham, did he have a, does he have a great name? Do you realize that the three great monotheistic religions in this world, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all say that Abraham is the founding father of their faith? That includes about three and a half billion people who still teach their children about this man, Abraham. Did his name become great? Oh, I think it did. I'd have to say next to Jesus Christ, Abraham has to be the most famous person on the planet. And it's 4,000 years after this promise was made. A great name and a great blessing. God said to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through you and your descendants. Is that true? Well, guess what? Prophets and the apostles were descendants of Abraham. It's through Abraham and his descendants that we got the word of God living and written. Abraham became a great blessing to all the families of the earth because through their descendants we got the word of God. The incredible history of Israel. Saints, in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, God promised, if they would trust and obey him, that he would exalt them above all the other nations. But if they did not trust, if they did not obey, if they fell into sin and idolatry, 
precisely the opposite would happen. They became a world power, but because of their sin, because of their disobedience, after Solomon, the empire was divided into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. They began to suffer persecution, and they have been the most persecuted people in the history of this world. Solomon was 960 B.C. It was in 720, so the northern kingdom lasted about 240 years. It was in 720 B.C. that the Assyrians crushed the northern kingdom and exiled 10 of the 12 tribes. The Assyrians were brutal. When they conquered a nation, they tortured their victims. They were just brutal, brutal people. Then in 586 B.C., it was the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar that conquered the southern kingdom, and the Jews were exiled into Babylon. The Israelite nation was now under foreign powers. They were exiles in the world, and Israel would not be recognized as a nation for almost 2,600 years later. But God never took his hand off of them. After the Babylonians, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persian Empire. That was Cyrus the Great, the Persians. That was in 538 B.C. So now the land of Jerusalem, the land of Israel, is now under the uh, control of the Persian Empire. Cyrus uh, allowed the temple to be rebuilt because uh, Nebuchadnezzar totally destroyed Solomon's temple. Some scholars believe that Cyrus might have been related to Queen Esther, but the point is that Cyrus allowed them to rebuild the temple. But that didn't last long because then came Alexander the Great in 333 BC. The Greeks conquered the then known world, and now after Alexander died, that kingdom was divided into four kingdoms, which is precisely prophesied in unbelievable detail in Daniel chapter 11, which was written about 200 years, and it tells us about Alexander the Great coming. Now, it doesn't use the name Alexander the Great, but the story is described in incredible. The detail is so good, it's so specific, that most of the scoffers say that Daniel, no, no way Daniel could have been written before those events. Had to be written afterwards. In 186 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, a Syrian king, wants to Hellenize the entire world, wants to make Greek the culture of the entire world. So he wants to, and he came in and forbid the Jews from practicing their religion. He went into the Holy of Holies, desecrating the Holy of Holies because only the high priest could go in there. And he slaughtered a pig on the altar, which many considered to be an abomination of desolation. He didn't last long because in 64 BC, it was General Pompey representing the Roman Empire that conquered the known world. So now they're living under a Roman tyranny. And in it's uh, 60 years B.C. It's 60 years later that Matthew 1.1 is realized. The very first verse in the New Testament says this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That verse... <laughs> 
Out of context sounds a little dry and boring, but the fact of the matter is that verse is fascinating because it tells us a number of things. Number one, it tells us that God always keeps his promises. Number two, that the Bible is one book. Number three, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that through him all of the earth would be blessed. God is saying in Matthew 1.1, the promise that was given 2,000 years ago is being fulfilled right now. A.D. 70, General Titus, later to become Emperor Titus, destroys, sacks Jerusalem, leaves a million Jews dead. One stone of the temple is left upon another precisely as Jesus predicted before he ascended to heaven and now the Roman Empire is ruling the world with an iron fist. They win all their arguments by killing their enemies. Jesus comes along and says, love your enemies. The Roman Empire says, kill your enemies. The Roman Empire lasted 500 years, and here we are 2,000 years later, and there are more Christians alive at this moment than the total number of people that made up the Roman Empire over its entire 500-year history. They fed Christians to lions. Today, the lions and the tigers are on the endangered species list, and Christianity is the fastest-growing religion in the world. Thank you, Jesus. Matthew 1.1 was a fulfillment of the promises that were given dozens and dozens of times, hundreds and even thousands of years before it happened. Isaiah 7.14 said the virgin would bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9.6.8 says they will call him Wonderful Counselor, the Everlasting God and the Prince of Peace. Micah 5.2 eliminates all the cities of the world and says Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. Jesus ascends to heaven. Christianity is still against the law. The Roman Empire was a pagan empire. They attributed their rise to power to the gods. So the idea of Christianity was repulsive to Romans. But in 330 AD, Emperor Constantine decides Jesus can help him win battles. Constantine decriminalizes Christianity and makes it the state religion. So the Roman Empire became the Holy Roman Empire, which we know today as the Holy Roman Catholic Church. That is the real beginning of the Catholic Church. Constantine mixed paganism with Christianity, and that's how you get Roman Catholicism. The empire was weakening, so Constantine moves the capital from Rome to Byzantium. He changes the name to Constantinople, which means the city of Constantine, which we know today as modern-day Istanbul. So the Byzantine Empire ruled until the Muslims came along in, in 638. The Muslims took Jerusalem in 691. They built the Dome of the Rock that still stands on the foundation called the Temple Mount where Solomon's Temple once stood. 
Interestingly, the Bible says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, let the reader understand we are close. In 1095, the Crusades came along. Pope Urban II promised that if these crusaders would take back, would fight against the Muslims and take Jerusalem, not to give back to the Christians and the Jews, but to take Jerusalem for Rome, he promised them an indulgence. He promised that all past sins would be forgiven and they would have a free ticket to heaven if they would fight the Muslims for the Pope. But they weren't just fighting Muslims. The Pope sought to rid uh, Israel of ecclesiastical heretics and it moved to Europe and an ecclesiastical heretic was anybody who didn't want to convert to Roman Catholicism. So they killed Jews, they killed Christians, they killed Muslims, they massacred, they robbed, and they raped. It went all across Europe. It's called the Crusades. It lasted for 300 years. Nobody knows exactly how many people died in the Crusades. There was a widespread expulsion of Jews in Europe beginning in England in 1290. It uh, then moved to France in 1306. Then began the Spanish Inquisition of the 15th century. Rest assured, my friends, those crusaders who were murdering in the name of Jesus were not murdering for Jesus. That was a different Jesus. That wasn't the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible said, love your enemies. The Jesus of the Bible said, forgive your enemies. The Jesus of the Bible says, if you even have unforgiveness in your heart towards someone, you are a murderer. That's the Jesus of the Bible. Then it was the Turks in 1453. Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Empire who were Turkish Muslims. Then in 1917, after World War I, the Brits took control of the land of Israel from the Turks. They promised that they would help the Jews come back into their land, but they broke their promises under pressure from the Arabs and their oil. They reneged on their promises. Please remember that God says, I'll bless those who bless thee and I'll curse them that curse thee. Today, at that time, England controlled a quarter of the world. Today, England is bankrupt morally, spiritually, and financially, and is being completely overrun by Muslims. After that, World War II, the Nazis. In 1939, Satan handed the baton to a young man by the name of Adolf Hitler. They invaded Poland, and that was the beginning of World War II. By the time it was all said and done, and by the way, Hitler convinced Germany and the rest of the world, the final solution, he called it, to the problems in our world was all based on the Jew, and all we had to do was exterminate the Jews to have a, pure, a more pure race of people. By the time it was all said and done, 59 million people died in World War II. Hitler personally murdered 11 million people, 6 million of whom were Jews. Their crime? They were Jews. In 1945, Germany surrendered. Adolf Hitler, shortly before that, committed suicide. Three years later, Israel was born again. 
From 1945 to 1947, there was, a, there was an Israeli uprising against British rule over their land. They had begun to trickle back into the land. The Brits finally gave control back. After 2,500 years, Israel was back in the hands of the Jews. Interestingly, in Ezekiel 36, God said this concerning Israel. This is stunning. It says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy in their sight. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from the lands and bring you back into your own land. On May 14, 1948, Israel declared themselves a nation. A year later, they were recognized by the United Nations as a sovereign state. But on May 15th, one day after Israel declared her sovereignty, five Arab countries, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and Iraq, attacked Israel, launching the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. Since then, Israel has suffered five full-blown attacks by her neighbors. They're attacked every day, but they suffered five full-blown attacks from her neighbors on every side. There's only six million people living in Israel. They're surrounded by 350 million Arabs, and every time they have attacked Israel, Israel has not only routed her enemies, but one decisive, miraculous victories because they've been outnumbered and outgunned in some cases 10 to 1 many times and each time God gave the victory to Israel. Why is it that these Arab nations with all their population and all their oil money, 350 million people cannot destroy little tiny Israel? I know what the reason is. The Arabs or anybody else can never take the land from Israel again because God promised in Jeremiah 31 that you'd have a better chance of changing the course of the sun and the moon and the stars than to ever removing them from that land again because I gave it to them. Do you understand that? They'd have a better chance of trying to move the moon out of its place than to ever taking the, the land from Israel ever again. When they won their statehood in 1948, the ancient city of Jerusalem was still under Arab control. And in 1967, called today the Six-Day War, in six days, Israel destroyed the five nations that were lined up against her ready to attack. She sent out a preemptive strike against all these nations that were lined up on her borders ready to attack, in six days, it was over. And they took control of the ancient city of Jerusalem in 1967. And for the first time since the Babylonians and the uh, uh, Assyrians, the ancient city of Jerusalem was now back in Jewish hands precisely as the Bible predicted. It's ap you can see the hand of God moving through history. This is history. Nobody can change this. 
Why have the Jews been the most persecuted people in history? The battle is not against flesh and blood. The, bad, the real battle for that piece of real estate is between the forces of darkness and the prince of peace. Why is this piece of real estate the most disputed piece of real estate in the world? John chapter 4 says salvation is of the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. He was born in Israel. He shed his blood on Israeli soil. He's the fulfillment of the promise even before the world began that the lamb would be slain before the foundation of the world for the sins of its people. That is why Israel is hated and disputed. The forces of darkness. Saints, if Satan could have destroyed the Jews in the Old Testament, then Jesus couldn't have come the first time. And he tried it many times. He tried it with Pharaoh. He tried it with uh, Haman. He tried it with Herod. He tried to kill the Jews many, many times and has been unable to because it's God's program. Saints, if Satan can destroy the nation of Israel today, then he can prevent the prophecy of Messiah returning to Zion. It says, the, it says when, the, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord will raise up a standard against him, and the Redeemer will come to Zion and to Jacob, saith the Lord. He will stand on the Mount of Olives, and he will destroy the nations that come against Jerusalem. It's spelled out in the Old and the New Testament. In Isaiah 59, 19, it says, When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. In Luke 1, 31, in the New Testament, it says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua. It means God is salvation. You shall call his name God is salvation. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. <laughs> yes! <laughs> this is better than the, than the, what festival is it? The Fungus Fest! <laughs> there won't be any more fungus when Jesus comes back. Do you understand that if Israel is victorious or even exists, it shows that the Quran is false, that Muhammad was not a prophet, and there is no God called Allah. Who does the land really belong to? Even a Muslim will tell you that God's word cannot be changed, and they believe Moses. Here's what it says in Genesis 17, 17. I'm almost done. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, 
Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and, will, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And that when he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. This is the crux of the Middle East problem. According to the Bible, God promised the land to Abraham and to his son of promise, Isaac, and to their descendants. 2,600 years later, Muhammad comes along and says, Ishmael, not Isaac, is the rightful heir, and therefore the land belongs to the Arabs. That is why the Muslims are determined to destroy Israel and take the land. As I just said, if Israel prevails or even exists, Muslims will be forced to admit that Allah is not the true God, Muhammad was not a prophet, and the Quran is false. One last shocking prophecy. A shocking prophetic truth about Ishmael. In Genesis 16:11, it says, And the angel also said, You are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears, for the Lord has heard your cry of distress. Listen to this. It says, this son of yours will be a wild man, untamed like a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against his own relatives. I used to have a barber who was an Iraqi, and he got saved when he was from Iraq. And I'd say, hey, Pete, what do you think about what's going on in the Middle East? He says, those Arabs, don't, the only thing they understand is the hammer. <laughs> says he'll be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand will be against everybody else. What do we see? The Middle East, all the nations that surround Israel are literally up for grabs. Egypt is up for grabs broiled in a civil war. Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Iran, Sudan, Libya. All these nations, they're all killing each other, man. Sunnis kill Shiites, Shiites kill Sunnis. Radicals are fighting with moderates. They're killing each other. He is a wild donkey of a man. His hand is against his own relatives. Do you know who holds the record for the largest number of murders in the world? Humanly speaking, Adolf Hitler was responsible for 11 million. Joseph Stalin killed 20 plus million. Mao Zedong murdered 60 million Chinese people. But since the seventh century, up until now, 14 centuries, the killing has been going on, and it is estimated that Muslims have murdered somewhere. The low end of things is 150 million. It might be as high as 250 million people. The Bible says Satan was a murderer from the beginning. So where are we on the prophetic time clock? In closing, if Jesus was 2,000 years ago, 
And Abraham was 2,000 years before Jesus. Scholars tell us, to the best of their calculations, that Adam and Eve were 2,000 years before Abraham. That's 6,000 years ago. The Bible says God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on, on the seventh day he rested. He didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because he, wanted, he was finished with his work, is what it means. He was done, at least creating the New Testament tells us that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So if it's been 6,000 years since Adam and Eve, then we are at the dawn of the seventh day. And Jesus Christ is about to stand up, and he's putting on the uniform of a glorious captain. And he's going to return on a white horse with angels in flaming fire. And he's going to judge the world in righteousness from the throne of David in Jerusalem. Israel would have to be in Jewish hands for that to happen. Here's the so what. Soon it's going to be too late to forgive your brother. It's going to be too late to say you're sorry. It's going to be too late to repent. Too late to change your ways. Too late to read the Bible. Too late to pray. Too late to share the gospel with anybody. The night is almost over. The day is at hand when no man can work. So let us work while it is still called today. The Bible says we are to redeem the time because someday soon we're going to stand before the living God and we're going to give an account for what we did. And I don't want to end on a negative note. I want to end on a positive note. I mentioned in Sunday school, if you see somebody driving the wrong way on a one-way street, it's not negative to roll down your window and say, you're going the wrong way. It's actually very positive. If you love somebody enough, you tell them the truth. And I fear for many people who sit in our churches week after week after week, and we cherry-pick the verses we like, yeah, we know those verses. But the verses we don't like, it's, oh, you know, I don't know if that, I don't think that applies to me, and I don't really understand it. Well, there's a lot of verses in the New Testament that are very frightening that has to do with false converts or people who say they believe but don't get engaged in the, in the work of the ministry. It's frightening. There are so many of them. I'll only share uh, 30 seconds and I'm done. I think of the, the parable, which is... Uh, more than a parable, but it teaches a real truth about uh, the people who were given talents. One man was given five, one, two, one, one. The man who was given the one hid his talent in the ground. And when the landowner came back and wanted his talent back, plus what have you made with what I gave you? How did you invest it? Let me see the fruit. Essentially, it means the gospel. And he gives him the talent back and says, well, I, uh, I wasn't that interested in your gospel, so here you can have it back. He didn't even put it in the bank to gain interest. He did nothing with it. And he said, you are wicked and you are lazy. And he was cast into outer darkness. If you're not engaged, and I'm not saying our, our salvation depends on our good works. I'm saying our good works are the result of our salvation. I love you. I thank you for having me. Let's pray.